Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 through 15, if you have a Bible. The message and title, The Sins of God's People, Malachi 3, 6 through 15. Have you ever tried to show um, a person their need of uh, repenting from their present lifestyle of sin and in view of God's coming judgment? But they're indifferent. Well, you know, I don't really know if I believe that. Well, you know, I mean, everybody's kind of bad and good and whatever. Such was the case with Malachi here, the messenger of God. God has proclaimed repentance in view of their present sin in chapter 1 and 2. Then he turned to proclaim repentance in view of God's coming to judge man in verse 3 and 4. God is the speaker confronting and accusing the defiled priest in the first person, beginning chapter 1, verse 6, all the way to chapter 2, verse 9. And the prophet is the speaker indicating the disobedient people in the third person when you get to chapter 2, verse 10 through 17. So it goes back and forth. Now, God is still the speaker to the indifferent people about their present sin in chapter 3 who believed God would not judge them, revealing God would send his messenger to judge. And he does this in the first person in verse 1 through 5 of chapter 3. God now continuing from verse 6 to 15, speaks accusing his people here of their rebellious history through the prophet Malachi charging them with three sins in view of his coming. Let me read here verse 6 to 15. He says, For I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob, yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances, you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, In what way shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even the whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, um, that there may be food in my house, and try me. Now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing, that will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail and and bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be delightful, uh, delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed for those who do wickedly are raised up. They even tempt God uh, and go free. Then those who feared the Lord. I'm sorry, we'll stop right there. 15, not 16. 15 ends the text. Now, here, God charges them with three sins as he's coming to the close of his book. First, we have the people were disobedient to walk in the word of God, verse 6 through 7. That's where it always starts. Second, the people were dishonest withholding what belonged to God in verse 8 through 12. And thirdly, The people were disrespectful by the words to God. Their words, verse 13 through 15. Again, it begins here with the first point. The people were disobedient to walk in the words of God. Verse 6 and 7. Notice verse 6. The prophet Malachi declared the revelation of God's constancy. God spoke through the prophet Malachi directly to the people. I am the Lord. I do not change. God reminded the people of his constant loving relationship to them. For I am the Lord. All capital letters. Yahweh, the covenant God. The one who delivered them from Egypt. 
made them his own people, consistently faithful to his covenant. Never could he be charged about anything that didn't come to pass. God noted, reminded them he was forever predictable. Listen to his words. I do not change. The word change is in the negative. It means to repeat, to do again, to alter regarding his person or character. This is called the immutability of God. His attribute revealing that he does not change, doesn't increase. He cannot increase. He cannot decrease. But is the epitome of perfection in all his attributes. In other words, his love for them was constant. When they walked and obeyed God, he protected them. He blessed them. His love for them was constant. And when they sinned, he had to judge them. Because he is holy and he hates sin consistently. Now listen. The sun melts the wax and hardens the clay. It depends what kind of material you are, right? The sun didn't change. God is holy. If we walk with him, he's for us. We don't walk with him, he has to be against us. He doesn't change. Now when I repent... It seems like God changed, but he didn't change. He's acting according to his attributes and nature, right? Simple. You as a parent do the same thing with your child. When they're obeying, they're doing good. You bless them. You pour out your love on them. You do stuff that you would never do. They they get a little funky. Mm. How much more God? Now notice, God related... His ever-unchangeableness to their survival. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Consumed means to come to an end, to just be destroyed. Being the epitome of holiness, he had to judge and has to judge sin. Being merciful, compassionate, and just, he provides then the sacrificial system by which sins can be atoned by the blood of the animals, right? Ultimately looking to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Now, the one being addressed is the entire nation of Israel. There's no longer north and south. They're all one. O sons of Jacob, the 12 sons. The promise was always to the remnant. Paul the Apostle says, just because they're Israel doesn't mean they're the true Israel of God. There's the remnant. Notice in verse 7, the prophet Malachi declared the revelation of the people's obstinate disobedience as his people, marking their character. But then make sure you're ta- you know who he's talking to. He's talking to the people of God, not the pagans. Okay? That's his audience. God stated the duration of their disobedience to him. Ready? Listen. Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. The people had a rebellious history from the days of their fathers. They rejected Moses when God uh, sent him to deliver them out of Egypt. They rejected God at Sinai and they took the golden calf and worshipped it. They rejected the land of God that he gave to them, fearing their children would be killed. They murmured and complained for 40 years through the wilderness until they all died. Could have been done in 11 days. They chose 40 years. They rejected God in his word and went into captivity. The northern kingdom to Assyria, the southern kingdom to Babylon. Wow. Wow. It's historical. We've overused the word historical with uh, President Obama. It's meaningless anymore. (laughs) But there are some historic things that we should note. This is one of them. Notice the people had also not changed in their disobedience to God. So God hasn't changed. He's still holy, but neither have they. The indictment against the people is unfaithfulness. Isn't those words, you have gone away from my ordinances. The ordinances means the limits, the boundaries, the decrees to enjoy life. You as a parent tell your child, I want to bless you. This is the way to do it. This is the way to go. This is what you're supposed to do. If they follow that, they're blessed, right? If they don't, mm, the consistent waywardness is depicted by the phrase, Gone away means to depart, to turn aside from the word of God. Notice the unconcerned indifference of the people is stated and have not kept them. The phrase not kept simply means to not guard, observe, or take heed. 
This was personal rebellion. This is God confronting his people like you confront your son or your daughter. You're dealing with the facts. You're dealing with their actions. You're dealing with their words. And the tone of your voice says everything. We don't get the tone here, but you're human. You can just imagine. Notice God stated the declaration of his love. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. This is the heart of a crying father, broken hearted. Oh, the Old Testament, God's a God of hate and wrath. and it Really? Wow. The plea is one of a broken heart. His steadfast love for his people, covenant love. He was the initiator, always is. The people were the responders. But he doesn't force you to respond or anybody else. The proclamation was to be reconciled to God. There you have the word again, return. To turn back, repent. By the way, it's an imperative command. It's not a suggestion. You as a parent tell your child, you better knock it off, buddy. You're not asking them. You better stop what you're doing. You better quit hanging around with those guys. You better clean up your mouth. You're not asking your son or daughter if they want to do it. You're telling them. Repentance has already been offered on and on. Chapter 2, verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 16. Just to mention a few. This is always the only solution to sin. You cannot fix sin with another sin. It only makes it worse. It's like you trying to take a knot from your shoelaces out by putting another knot. Good luck. Notice the promise. I will return to you. So he doesn't change. He's asking people to change. If they change, then he'll be himself. Right? The seeming change of God was in view of repentance, but he really did not change. He only acted according to his holiness, based on the provisions of the animal sacrifice that would atone for their sins, and they would be one with God. That's it. The holiness of God being unviolated and the sins of man being covered. How gracious is he? Wow. Notice the person speaking is the omnipotent God, the Lord of hosts. The captain of the armies of heaven. The term appears 24 times. We've stated it before. No one's ever defeated him. He's not worried about anybody. He doesn't consult anybody. He doesn't have to take inventory for anything. He just does as he wills because he can only do good. Wow. God stated the quotation of the people's sarcastic words. This book is so sarcastic, so disrespectful. Listen, you'll hear your children here. But this is God's children to God, so you'll hear yourself here. And myself. But you said, in what way shall we return? Ooh. When your son, daughter talks to you like that, you get that nice, warm, fizzy, little fuzzy, little buzzy, little feelings. You want to just give them a hug? I don't think so. You want to give them some time out. <laughs> they had walked so long this way, they didn't even recognize the evil. We've all been around parents that don't discipline their children, and they dis- they, the way they talk to them, you go, it doesn't even bother Why? Because they've, they've been like that for so long. They saw no need of repentance. We've all known rebellious and disobedient people who have brought devastating consequences to their life, in their lives, be it husband, wife, son, daughter, whoever. It's personally done by the individual. The opening psalm tells, sets the tone for the life of the godly person. Uh, psalm um, uh, 1, verse 1 through 5 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of the sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, nor does the progression stand, sits, and all that, walking. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper, prosper spiritually, not materially. That'll come automatic. We'll talk about it in a little bit. 
The ungodly are not so, but are like the shaft which the wind drives away. What a contrast. The prophets are no different, but remind the godly. It says, Micah says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Micah 6, 8. Now, what's wrong with those things? They're only going to give us good, right? They're only going to make things good for other people, right? Nothing wrong with those things. Yet today's society looks down upon them. You don't hear the word honor, virtue, character, morality, courageous. Mm. The New Testament is one with the Old Testament. Listen carefully. Galatians 5.16 says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's, it's one or the other. Okay? Walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.25, if, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Walking speaks about going forward, progressing, going straight, being balanced, understanding, having a place to go, knowing what you're doing. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you are called. Ephesians 4.1 this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of your mind. Futility, empty, vain mind. Ephesians four seventeen. You remember? I used to think things you did. You know how blessed you are that you're sitting here this morning? You know how blessed you are that you've repented from your sins? You know how blessed your children are? And everybody else around you? Hmm. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. An offering and sacrifice of God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Ephesians 5.2 For you were once darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Ephesians 5.8 See then that you walk circumspectly, very careful, very exact. Not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. Here's the reason, because the days are evil. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Now, if Paul's days were evil, what should we say about ours? The people were disobedient to walk in the word of God. That's where it all begins, ladies and gentlemen. Second, verse 8 through 12. God responded through... Um, the people here were dishonoring, dishonors um, withholding what would belong to God. And God responded through the prophet Malachi um, to the sarcastic words of the people again regarding their need to repent. Um, God reveals something no one would know except him. Listen to the words. Will a man rub God? It's like you as a parent know something your kid did, he doesn't think you know, and you bring it up and he goes, <gasps> busted. This is God. Only God knows this. The people have said, in what way shall we return? As if they were guiltless. But in fact, they were guilty of so many other sins. And God picks this one we're going to see. As if they were speaking to another human being. And the scripture says, this is what you have forgotten. You thought I was just like you, human. Ooh. The rhetorical question has only one correct answer. No. No. God knows everything. God sees everything. God knows the motive behind every act, every deed. I don't even know all the motive of my heart. Sometimes I think I'm, I'm doing it for others and it's for me. And then God nails me. God accused them directly. Listen, yet you have robbed me. Now, you know, as a parent, you repeat something to your kid. Now, listen to me. Look at me. Look at me good. They were withholding what was God's. They were guilty before God. So God quoted their very words again for the accusation. You as a parent do it too. Listen, this, this is what you said. Okay, no, I, you did. Listen to me. He says here, But you say, In what way have we robbed you? The word but marks the sharp contrast between the truth of the accusation by God and the false words of their denial. God is seeking confession and repentance. 
He's not simply looking to make them feel bad, to castigate them. Though he may have to happen, but he's seeking confession before that comes. Their words were consistent with their previous words. Sarcastic and arrogant, indifferent and offensive. God hasn't changed. He's holy. His people haven't changed either. They're sinful. Look at still seven. God declared the charges clearly in tithes and offerings. Now, if you're a visitor, we're not here. We don't want no money from you, okay? We're not here to pressure you. Um, um, as a pastor, 37 years, I've done probably eight, nine messages on tithing. That's when we go through the scriptures. That's it. Okay, we don't take we don't take up offerings. We don't write letters. We don't we don't uh, wash cars, bake cookies. We don't do any of that kind of stuff. Okay, we trust the Lord to take care of us. Okay, and we do simply by a simple offering in the morning once a week, and that's it. All right. Now let me go on, just so you know. Now, he declared the charges clearly in tithes and offerings. The first time tithing is recorded is with Abraham. You remember in Genesis 14, 18 through 20, Abraham was returning from rescuing his, his nephew Lot and many others and um, from the captivity of those confederacy of kings. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God, came out to meet him with bread and wine. And Abraham gave him a tenth of all that, were, that he had uh, in uh, verses 18 and 20 of Genesis 14. Now, Melchizedek is a type of a prophetic type of Christ, okay? He's not Jesus Christ. There's sometimes the angel of the Lord is Christ, but he's not Melchizedek because you cannot be the type and the fulfillment. It's prophetic pointing forward and Jesus is the fulfillment of it and Melchizedek is the priesthood of Jesus, Psalm 110 and also here and in the book of Hebrews, okay? And Abraham literally is paying tithes to Melchizedek who is a higher order of priests but because Levi is in the loins of Abraham, the book of Hebrews says. All right? So it's a much higher, which means that God dealt with other people before Israel. Because he's the priest of the most high God. You remember Moses' father-in-law? He offered sacrifice to the priest. Woo! Now, if he wasn't a priest and God hadn't talked to him, he couldn't have offered it and God wouldn't have accepted it, right? Interesting. Now, the word tithe simply means 10%. The offerings are the supplementary contributions. Now, the Old Testament tithe was more than 10%. People say, well, yeah, the Old Testament, it's more. Um, Notice the word in the plural, tithes, in verse 10, the beginning. There was 10% of tithes for the first fruits in Leviticus 27, 30 through 33. Then there was 10% for the Levites' inheritance and service in Leviticus 18, 21, because they didn't get any land, okay? They were supported. By the offerings of the nation. And also in the book of Numbers 18 and Deuteronomy 12. And there was also 10% for the poor every three years in Deuteronomy 14, 28, 29. So if you average it out, it might be about 24, 25, 26% average every year. Okay? That's what it really works out to. Now, Jesus criticized the tithing of the Pharisees by a woe. For the hypocritical manner which they were doing it. Um, He says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass the justice of the law of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Luke 11, 42. So in other words, you ladies, you know your spices, and they were the smallest of spices. They go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. For me, God, here's your one. I mean, these guys were meticulous. And Jesus says, you guys are rats. You're doing it for show. You're going to find out God is not interested in how much you give. He's more interested in why and how you give. That's what impresses him. Look at verse 9 through 12. God pronounced through the prophet Malachi the verdict for their crime of robbing God and the solution. The verdict had consequences directly related to their crime. God removed the blessing 
on their crops. You are cursed with a curse. This curse is not like a witch or this and that. It's the blessings and curses in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Blessings and curses, okay? The verification that it is the crops that is indicated here will be declared in verse 10 and 11. God repeated the reason, for you have robbed me. This was not an oversight. This was a deliberate transgression, willful disobedience. God accused all the people of this crime, by the way, even this whole nation. That's incredible. This, was not, this is not hyperbole. It's not an exaggeration. This is God speaking to the people absolute truth. Look at 10. The solution to the curse over their cross was repentance. What a surprise. God gave an imperative command again. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. The temple had been built by the hands of the remnant that came back from Babylon. As you remember, the two prophets were Haggai and Zechariah. It was around 520 B.C. Now the temple had been neglected and uncared for in service. In fact, chapter 1 opens up, you know, about all this blemished stuff they're offering. God says, yeah, I wish you guys just shut the door. Don't even come in. It was nauseating to him. Isaiah opens up his book like that too. It was a stench to God's nose. Now God gave two reasons for the tithe. Notice still in verse 10. For the perpetuation of his house and the work, for there may be food in my house. By the way, Nehemiah had to correct this too when he came back from Persia, Nehemiah 10 and 13. Nothing new, okay? When he came back, the Levites were working the, the, the fields and all that because remember, in the law, they took care of the, the, the spiritual sacrificial things and they didn't receive any land and his inheritance. It was the only tribe. Now, second is for proving the faithfulness of God to bless them in their giving. The challenge is this. Listen carefully. And try me now in this, all the tithes and offerings, says the Lord of hosts. The evidence, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. The blessing here is the rain from heaven for the crops. All right? Not money. Though crops are money. You understand? Because a lot of positive confession people like Copeland, Hagen, and Price and all these yo-yo heads, they'll, they'll do this stuff, okay? Um, now, notice in verse 11, God confirmed his blessing by ensuring a great harvest. He would protect the cross from pests. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake so that he will not destroy the fruit of the ground. See, you can be diligent and have all the equipment and you plow and you seed and all that, but you got the bugs. God says, I created these guys. I can take care of them. Wow. He promised an abundant crop. Nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. Now, many prophets declared the very same thing throughout their history. Amos chapter 4, 11 through 11, Haggai 1, 3 through 7, Zechariah 8, 9 through 13, Joel 2, 20, and we can go on and on all of them because they were being called by God to repent. So when they were living in sin, he affected every sense of their living, chasing them. There's a caution here. This should not be the motivation for our giving nor taught to be gimmick like a spiritual pyramid that if you give God one, he gives you ten. This is not what the Bible teaches. Not at all. And anybody who teaches that is a quack, a huckster, a thief, and a robber misrepresenting God. The preview of the millennium is revealed in verse 12. He's talking about this. So what does he do? And all the minor prophets speak about the millennium. Listen carefully. This cannot refer to Malachi's time. And all nations shall call or will call you blessed. For you will be a delightful land. In other words, God's delay in coming has not thwarted his future promises. I'm telling you I'm coming. You don't believe I'm coming. You've chosen to live in sin. But I'm telling you the millennial is still coming. Just because it isn't here doesn't mean it's not coming. 
I can't lie. God is right on schedule. He is still coming. Many people have gotten bitter against God. Maybe they came to the Lord in the 60s or 70s and God hasn't come back. Well, what's your problem? He's still coming. The one revealing this is the omnipotent and omniscient God. He knows everything. Says the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, the one who is unstoppable, undefeatable, unmistakable. You know, people complain about their giving 10% to God, yet the minute I got saved, I was 25 to 30 to 40% ahead. That first weekend, I didn't buy a case of booze. I didn't tear my clothes out in the fight. I didn't crash my car. Right away. And yet here we are, grabbing a penny and pinching it so hard, Lincoln's eyeballs are popping out. Are you kidding me? You know, we go out and eat and tip the waitress 15 to 20%. We pay the IRS 15 to 30% or more. As if God is broke, ladies and gentlemen, God is not broke. Trust me. He owns the cattle on every hill. <laughs> he paves heaven with gold. The teaching that God is going to give you one dollar. Or that he'll give you ten if you give him one dollar is unscriptural. God does not teach in the word of God. And so people constantly beg, prod. They have programs, manipulation for people. This is a carnal teaching by carnal pastors, teaching carnal motivation for carnal Christians, following carnal manners of the Gentiles instead of the priorities of seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness and everything else be added on to us, as Matthew 6.33 says. It's real simple. It is based on the teaching that godliness is a means of gain and we are commanded to withdraw ourselves from such individuals who teach and believe such corrupt doctrines in 1 Timothy 6.5. And the majority of God's people teach this. We're not to be around them. People will tell you that if you have faith, you're going to be rich. They're corrupt. Automatically, when you're born again, you're going to be financially ahead. You're not spending your money unwisely. You're not spending on things that are ungodly. And you're going to be a good steward. Automatically. Yet God does not change us because of money. Money doesn't do anything. It only corrupts us. Yet God does challenge us to prove him, and not only in Malachi. But in Ecclesiastes 11, 1 and 2, it says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. So even though there isn't a philosophy of give one and get ten, God does say that if you're obedient to God, God's going to take care of you, right? That's what he's saying. Proverbs eleven twenty four to 25 says, There is one who scatters and yet increases more. There is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Jesus put it this way, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you in Luke six thirty-eight. But the motive is not to get more or that God is some kind of genie. We consider tithes and offerings a privilege that is not to be abused. We, do, we receive an offering and tithes. We don't take offerings. We receive them from you. And we do it in such a way as Scripture teaches once a week, the first day of the week. That's the only time we take an offering. We don't take it any time. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside something um, aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collection when I come. Now remember, Paul is taking an offering for the poor saints of Jerusalem. Okay, that's what he's doing. Man views giving different from God. God is not interested in how much we give, but 
that we give according to what we have, not what we don't have. Listen to him in 2 Corinthians 8, 12 through 14. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. For if I do not, uh, I do not mean for others should be ease and you burden, but be an equality. 2 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. So in other words, all of us, as God has blessed us, if we're Christians, we do our part as God leads us. God takes care of it. This church, the gym, all the things that God has done, no one can say, I did it or we God has been so good, so good to us. So good. We must be very clear about what the scriptures teach about financial giving. It is simply this. No one is to pressure you to give, make you feel guilty or manipulate you, but as God directs you that it might be fulfilling in God's will and Benefit your life. Second Corinthians 9, 6 says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Simple principles. Now, man always looks at the amount of his giving. God looks at the attitude of my heart when I give. Second Corinthians 9, 7 says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful, hilarious giver. If you cannot give to God hilariously, please do not pollute our offering. God looks at the heart. The widow with the two mites, remember, Jesus says, he called his disciples to him and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, for they all put in of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she has, her whole livelihood, Mark 12, 23 through 44, what it took for her to live that day. Now, when I was first became a Christian, you know, we're getting married and we're going to have kids, you know, we don't make that much money, but yet God's always the priority, okay? Now, we're older, our kids are grown up, my kids are in their 40s, okay? All right, so it's not that big of a sacrifice now, is it? Is God looking for me to hurt? No. So God's interested in my heart. Not the amount. He could care less about the amount. We teach and live out our philosophy of ministry here. As the scriptures teach and as Pastor Chuck taught all the Calvary chapels. Where God guides, he provides. Now... If you ever listened to Chuck on the radio before he died on K-Wave, he never begged. He never said. He gave everything free. He didn't even allow the broadcast to say, we appreciate your prayerful support. No. Now, on K-Wave, it's all there is is begging. Greg Laurie is the worst. And he's one of the original Calvary chapels. What happened to God? Wow. I commend you for your, your gracious giving as a body. The history of this church affirms and confirms God's grace through his people and the work. We're thankful for you. That you depend upon God and we depend upon God and not upon people. And we're so thankful to God for you. All that God has done. It's an amazing thing. The medical outreach of the radio, everything else. 37 years. It's a heck of a long time. And God is able to make all grace abound, Paul says, towards you, that you always, having all insufficiency, all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, Matthew six twenty one. Where is your treasure? There's where your heart's going to be. It's just real simple. So the people were dishonest withholding what belonged to God. Notice thirdly, the people were dishonorable by their words to God. 13 through 15. In verse 13, God charged the people through the prophet Malachi for speaking slanderous words against God to one another, by the way. Marking their attitude. God rebuked them for their evil words. Your words have uh, been harsh against me, says the Lord. 
The word harsh means to grow stout and rigid in a bad sense. The words of people have become cold and thoughtless. The words were cutting and mean-spirited towards God with each other. The words were vicious to offend God. The one speaking is the Lord, the covenant God. The one who loved them, cared for them, protected them, provided for them. Notice God quoted again their very words. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? Ooh, the people were consistent in denying their words. Yet the one who is omniscient knows everything. Nothing's hidden from him. The one who's omnipresent, nothing escapes him. He sees everything. The people were calling God a liar in effect. Yet he is immutable. Can't change. Yet he is perfect in every attribute that make up his person, resulting in a perfect character. The epitome of perfection, if you will. Listen to Habakkuk. Remember Habakkuk asking the Lord, what are you doing? Look, all this evil with Babylon. He said, I'm going to do something that you can't believe. Well, it'll show me. I'll... You are of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devour a person more righteous than he? Habakkuk 1.13. Habakkuk, I'm going to show you what I'm doing. I'm, I am doing something, but I, I'm going to take Babylon, who is more wicked than us. I'm going to judge my people. I can't believe it. I told you you're not going to believe it. God is holy. He will judge sin sooner or later. Look at 13. God charged the people through the prophet Malachi for speaking now maliciously against God to one another. He quoted their words that were uh, that there was no value in serving him. You have said it is useless to serve God. The word useless simply means empty, having no real effect on their lives, which is a lie from hell. You know how blessed you are you, that you're sitting here, that you open God's word, that you're walking with God, that you're serving God? What else would you be doing? You'd be serving yourself. The people had come to view the service of God as an imposition. Oh, isn't God so lucky to have us? Hmm. The sure way to be empty is to serve yourself. You want to be affected by God? Then serve Him all the days of your life. The service of God is the most constructive thing you can ever do or be involved in with other believers. To serve God is the most fulfilling thing after being born again. Serving God is of the highest privilege. Notice God quoted their words that there was no benefit in serving God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, the word prophet, means gain, enrichment. Right away is money, but he's talking about the ben spiritual benefit. If we obey God's word, then it's going to bless us individually. In effect, they're saying God lies when people obey him. That God is unjust and unfair. That's what they're saying. The words are blasphemous to God, their creator, their national father and husband. Wow. God quoted their words that their worship was not appreciated by God. Listen, and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts. The word mourners describes the seeming humble worship, their outward ritual, just the whole thing, and their, wor their wordy prayers and their self-denial and afflictions. God's not taking notice. The people were saying God did not respond to their worship. It seemed as if God was disinterested. It seemed as if God was unable to act. The real reason is that they were living in sin, unwilling to acknowledge their sinful condition and unwilling to repent from their evil. God's not impressed with you living for evil and then just going through motions, going through the rituals, praising God, lifting your hands or mine. If that's what's going on, He doesn't, he doesn't pay attention to us. Wow. 
Notice verse 15, God charged the people through the prophet Malachi in sarcasm for con- corrupting his holiness. So he turns the tables. Now he, God's become sarcastic. Listen. God rebuked the people sharply for their praising the proud. Now we call the proud blessed. Woo, God speaking. So the proud are blessed. The sarcasm reveals how ludicrous these words were by the people of God. Never say never. If you do not walk with God according to his word, you will deviate. And I. Revealing how far they had departed from God. Everybody starts well. Everybody does not finish well. Everybody starts, but not everybody finishes. Are we clear on this? We believe you can walk away from God. All right? You have a free will before you're saved and after you're saved. God does not force you to go to heaven. You have all the right to go to hell. Bunyan said, there's a door to hell one step from heaven's gate. The Bible teaches that. So God rebuked the people sharply for promoting the wicked. Next. For those who do wickedness are raised up. Well, God is sarcastic here. So God, they're, they're, the sarcasm reveals the insanity of such a thing. The wicked would take advantage of the remaining godly, if there was any, and the wicked would only increase, revealing the depravity of man's heart when wickedness goes unchecked, when wickedness is promoted. When you, dis- when you do not bring consequence, you destroy authority. Welcome to American society. You keep lowering the bar. Pretty soon nothing works. God rebuked the people sharply for pardoning the guilty and blasphemous. Listen to his words. And they even tempt God and go free. Wow. The sarcasm revealed they had lost the fear of God. Discounting that God is holy and cannot compromise with evil. Ignoring God would judge every person though they set them Free and they were guilty. Wow. Revealing the blindness of sin in a person's life. Sin deadens the ability to sense the evil and destruction of sin. Sin hardens the heart, makes it unwilling and unable. To reject sin. Sin is addicting. And it kills. A hundred percent of people. That live for sin. Let me say that again. Sin is addicting. And it kills a hundred percent. Of the people who live for sin. Wow. The Old Testament ends. With repentance from sin. In view of God's coming. Four hundred years later. The New Testament opens up, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand with John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 1 and 2. End of the Old Testament, God is holy, calling people to repentance. 400 years later, same thing, nothing has changed. Wow. The most blasphemous words come from those men preparing for ministry today who do not believe in the inspiration of Scripture, the virgin birth, the second coming, and many, many other things, even they don't believe that everybody will be judged by God. And they're going to corrupt the pulpits of America through liberal theology. Fuller's one of them, and many others. Wow. The evil words of man against God are so prevalent in our present godless world. Men don't flinch to say, there's no God. If there is a God, he's guilty. Why does he make young people suffer? Why does he make deformities? Why does they accuse? Like if they, blasphemous words. That God is at fault for everything that's brought on their life. No, you, you brought it on your life. God didn't put that girl in your bed. And God didn't tell you to take the drugs. And God didn't this and that. You did it. You don't want God to rule your life, but you want God to help you out. You can't have it both ways. Or that God has not spoken through his word. The Bible is just a book and the other. Really? 
Wow, blasphemous. Matthew 12, 36 says, But I say to you, for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. Matthew 12, 36. Every word. The major pillars in our society now promote, defend wickedness and punish those who oppose wickedness, particularly those, particularly that of the Judeo-Christian morality. Our public schools and universities are the poison water source that has been the and continues to be the Trojan horse to America's downfall through liberal progressivism, channeled through political correctness. It's the water source. All our health providers, police departments, first responders are forced to accept it, abide by it, and demand it. Our politicians, lawyers, and judges ensure it effective to be transformation of America. Listen to Isaiah 520. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light, light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Welcome to America. We must pray for our nation, our leaders. We're in bad shape. God's mercy. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy three twelve through 13. Do you realize how blessed you are to be walking with God? His mercy. For you to have godly friends, parents, children. Wow. The people were dishonorable by their words to God. And so Malachi has pointed out these three sins that God himself charges the people with in view of his coming. The people were disobedient to walk in the word of God. The people were dishonest withholding what belonged to God. And the people were disrespectful for their words to God. What an incredible way to close the Old Testament. 400 years, nothing will change. Jesus will come on the scene. Same message. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. Deal with our hearts, and we thank you for this. Good morning, Lord, for just the people. I thank you for every one of them. I pray you speak to their hearts. And, Lord, you would direct and guide them in obedience. Myself, Lord, we thank you for your mercies through the years, Lord, and how good you are for your provisions, everything you do, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Only you can do that. Malachi is very sincere as an instrument of God to call people to repentance. This is the the heart of the message of the gospel. God loves you. God cares for you. God wants to forgive you. And God wants to work in your life to make you more like him and less like you. That is your only hope. My only hope. If you're out there in the radio... If you want to repent of your sins and ask Christ to forgive you and save you, this is your prayer. If you're in the internet or right here, this is your prayer to him. And he's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. And baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you. As my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.